Hello and welcome to another episode of Have You Got That Right, the podcast of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law based at Monash University. I'm your host, Marius Smith, manager of the Caston Centre. Today is a special interview edition of the podcast with John Lawrence SC, who spoke at our annual conference on the 21st of July this year. You can find videos of his entire speech and all the other conference speakers on our YouTube channel. Just search for YouTube Caston Centre. John's a barrister from the Northern Territory who, among other things, represents a 14-year-old boy who was abused at the Dondale Detention Centre, which became a national scandal after the Four Corners expose on the topic. John electrified the audience at our conference with a stirring call to arms, and a few days later our Deputy Director, Melissa Caston, sat down with him to tease out some of the themes of his talk. Welcome, John. Pleasure. Um, It's a year since the Royal Commission was called. That's right. In the Northern Territory. Mm-hmm. Where are we at with the Royal Commission? What's it doing now and, and what have we heard from it? Well, the, I think it was originally given three months and then it got, like so many Royal Commissions, got, it got a, an extension appropriate. And it was, the, all the evidence now is complete as in all the material that's evidence, including all the witnesses of which the number I can't recall. But there were a significant number, I think there might have been around about 70, and all the submissions from everybody that's got an interest in it have been filed in accordance with deadlines. And the report and the recommendations that will flow are due on the 30th of September, and pursuant to the letters patent, along with every other Royal Commission, it will be given, first of all, to the Prime Minister of Australia, and I think the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory, and then it gets tabled in Parliament ultimately. And then the politics begin because, like all royal commissions, they don't have any power. Mm. All they do is they, they can inquire at the highest level and they can make recommendations that should be appropriate. But after that, it's up to the politics of the day to either embrace it or reject it or a bit of both. So that's what will happen. I mean, we, we're quite familiar with there being royal commissions into issues, particularly regarding Aboriginal people around Australia. And one of the criticisms yeah. is that you know, it's it's death by a thousand paper cuts. We've got so much ad- administration and bureaucracy and reports and yeah. report writing and inquiries. Has it helped Aboriginal people at all? And particularly this, in this Royal Commission? Well, I think I can say the process has helped a lot of Aboriginal people, but more importantly, uh, grasping your question, which is relevant, is are we commissioned... Uh, what's the word? You know, where you're basically punch drunk with commissions, reports, reviews, inquiries. And that was stated at the very beginning by council assisting, saying that one of the issues here has to be that we can't have another inquiry and with all the expert evidence and then make all the recommendations and it comes to nothing. So they're conscious of it being the 280th, if you know what I mean. Mm. And a lot of people are, are cynical about it in that regard, particularly Aboriginal people, which I can understand more than others because they've seen so many happen, particularly the big one, which mm. was deaths in custody, mm-hmm. and from which there was 339 recommendations, and that took four years. Mm. Uh, and a lot of that hasn't, well, I mean, the, the, the figures for themselves speak that the incarceration level is double what it was when mm. they finished it. So I can understand that cynicism and that negative uh, view towards it. But having been at the coalface in the Northern Territory for 30 years, and seen deaths in custody and seen the other 200 local reports and others, I really do genuinely believe 
that this can present as a breakthrough potential because of various things, if for no other reason that we're living in such transient, changeable times mm. now. And I think a lot of people are conscious, certainly indigenous people are conscious that this is almost the last chance at romance. If this doesn't stop the rot, uh, acknowledge the rot, address the rot, and bring in recommendations that can work, then it could be the last chance. I don't mm. know where we're going to end. I mean, that Royal Commission the, into deaths in custody, yeah. you know, the primary recommendation that came out of it was that incarceration should be the last resort yeah. when dealing with Indigenous people who have come in contact in the criminals, mm. in the criminal so-called justice system. Sure. And we've seen how that, just if we didn't know anything else about that, mm. that one recommendation has really been only observed in the breach in the last 25 years. It, it, it appears so. Um, and some of it's been enshrined in legislation. I think the Commonwealth have enshrined it. But in actuality, as I say, the figures are double. In the Northern Territory, the figures are ridiculous. Your listeners would not believe the figures from the Northern Territory. Um, what can you say? Uh, my view, and I think I said this at the lecture on Friday, was that it hasn't so much been ignored and breached as it's been overwhelmed by the last 25 years of law and order, getting tough on law and order, mm. sentencing policies, Bail Act policies, mm -hmm. Justices Act policies. Mm. All of that, I, my view is that that's overwhelmed it more than not complying with mm -hmm. the 339 mm -hmm. recommendations. Mm -hmm. So there are more people going to jail Generally, there are more people going to jail for longer periods, mm -hmm. but when you're exposed like Aboriginal people are, which is the problem uh, in Australian society, it's Aboriginal people that go to jail more and for longer periods, mm -hmm. which I think explains significantly why the Royal Commission has failed disastrously in that regard. Mm -hmm. and just to go on those figures, because it's important that Australians realise what's happening in their country. The Northern Territory imprisonment rate is the highest imprisonment rate on the planet, quite literally. Mm. And these figures are measured by uh, however many prisoners you have per 100,000 of mm. your population. And if you look at the statistics right now, because I looked at it before the paper, uh, the Northern Territory is five times higher than any other state and territory in Australia. And it's higher than any other country in, in the world, the highest jail country in the world, needless to say ironically might be it's the United States of America, the land of the free, and their figures are around about 690, 700 per 100,000. Mm -hmm. The Northern Territory is 935, so the, the, we're miles ahead of any other place mm -hmm. in the world. And of course the point that you have to make is that literally 86 plus percent of that prison population is Aboriginal. Mm -hmm. And to go back 25 years ago when we had the deaths in custody, the proportion of Aboriginals then was 69%, which everybody thought would be impossible to increase. Mm. But we've increased the number and we've increased the proportion. Mm. And really, if you were a statistician, they have, what, what do you call it, a projection. If you were to do a projection, it means that all Aboriginals are going to jail. That's where it's ending. So it has to be acknowledged, mm. addressed, stopped just like we said 25 years mm -hmm. ago, but this time it has to happen. And typically people will say, well, if you're going to try and stop that cycle of incarceration, it has to start with young people and keeping young people out of mm. situations in engagement with um, the authorities and then the consequences of that, which yeah. is being you know, locked up. Now, Dondale, which is the subject of this, this inquiry, yeah. how many of the inmates... Have, you know, 100%. 100% yeah. original. The people. official figure is 97%, which might as well be 100. Mm -hmm. I think the 97 uh, caters for the odd maverick 
non-Aboriginal that gets in there during the 12-month cycle. Yeah. But it's basically they're all Aboriginals, and most of them are from the bush. Right. Uh, and most of them are on remand. In fact, 70% of them are on remand. So, so they haven't actually been found guilty of anything. And so those kids that were in the Four Corners show, yeah. uh, which was back in 2014, getting gas for the Troubles, uh, they were all on remand. And the, guy, the kid I represented was on remand, he was 14. So it's a disaster of the highest proportion. And the point I was making uh, on Friday was that, and I think this is really the point, because I've been doing it for 30 years now, it's just getting much, much worse. Yeah. And it's accelerating. It's, you know, it's going through the roof of the, the, the floor, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but it's getting much, much worse. And, and I think it's because, you know, the, the, the Royal Commission will ask, the question ultimately, well, this is the situation, this is disgraceful, this is a disaster, you wouldn't think it possible in a modern-day advanced country. And then the real question is, well, how in God's name did we end up having a justice system that included dealing with Aboriginal children mm. in a manner that you couldn't believe? It's mm. medieval. How yeah. did that happen? How did Dondale come to be the place where we put children waiting for processing in the, in the system? Well, Dondale's been there since 1991, and it was a purpose-built facility, and to most intents and purposes, it was cool when it was built, and it was appropriately ran. And to illustrate the point I'm making about 20 years of moral collapse, mm. what has been going on in the last 10, or the last five years, what was discovered going on, and I'll describe that in a minute, would have been inconceivable mm. 10 years ago, mm. 15 years ago. The, the conditions that I discovered were being enjoyed by Aboriginal children in this dungeon would have been unthinkable when I was... I used to be the senior lawyer at Aboriginal Legal Aid in the 90s. So I was out at Dondale all the time. I knew the conditions. I knew the situation. It wasn't the best. We agitated accordingly. But to have kids like what we've had them now, it just would have been possible. Mm -hmm. So we have just basically deteriorated, and there are a lot of causes as to why you morally collapse. Mm -hmm. But somebody made decisions, you know, to mm. implement the chair and the hood and the, That's right. and the keeping kids locked up for 23 and a half hours. Somebody sat down somewhere in an office yeah. and signed off on an yeah. administrative order somewhere. Yeah. The conditions of those kids, I should describe them really to put it in context, where, and we're talking about uh, a BMU unit, which used to be called the back cells, which was rarely used in the 90s and the early years of the 2000s. But it was a, a concrete bunker with five cells in it, rarely used. It then became standard to use it in the last couple of years as a punishment centre, really. And the kids that were in there in 2014 when the, the disturbance occurred, and I won't call it a riot because mm. it wasn't anywhere near mm. a riot because it was only one kid that got out. But those kids were in because they had previously escaped. And they had escaped because what we've discovered now through the Royal Commission is that they were enduring a, an absolute punitive policy. They were being abused mm. daily mm. in various ways, whether it was assaultive or psychological or sexual or you name it. The guards who were untrained, unqualified, mm. moronic, mm. were going around Dondale with their phones, which they're not allowed mm. to have, mm. filming the kids, following them into the toilets, saying to them, what are you doing in there, you effing gay dog? Mm. They were encouraging kids to eat birds' shit and filming it, and then they're sending that film out to their mates mm. and anybody else who's daft enough to watch it. They were encouraging kids to have a fight in the yard, and they'd film the fight and then send the film out. Mm. They were going into their bedrooms where they were trying to get to sleep. You saw film that they had that was played at the Royal Commission, where the kids are hiding under the sheets, yeah. and this guard saying, well, who wants to suck my effing... Mm. 
etc etc you know all this stuff's going on so to their credit these kids who have been literally abandoned by a legal system and abused when they're and they're being abused to their credit they fought back and those kids that were in the BMU actually escaped again I say this as a, as a legal practitioner, yeah. as a senior counsel, and as an upholder of the law, to their credit, yeah. they got out and they were captured within days and they were immediately put into this BMU unit mm. and they were in there indefinitely. And the conditions that they experienced in there was that my client, who was 14, he was in a cell three metres by two metres. It was steel. It's barely the size of this table. That would be right. Yeah. And it was all concrete, steel bars, iron mesh, Judas Hatch, no air conditioning, no fan, mm. one light, you mm. know, like a fluoro light above them, no hand basin, no hygiene, mm. a toilet without a toilet seat, a camera that viewed him 24 hours mm. of the day, no privacy, and he was kept in that dungeon for 23 out of 24 hours. Mm. There was no respite. So when he had a meal, he got three a day, he was forced to eat it in his cell. He couldn't come out and eat in a dining area or even in the courtyard area that was adjacent. He had to eat the meal. And of course, he's doing toilet. Mm. He can't wash himself after doing the toilet. He can't wash himself before he gets his meal. Mm. So this kid, he's 14. He's from originally the bush in the, mm. the Western Desert area. He's going through this. And eventually he cracked after. And he was in there indefinitely. And he mm. was in there for 16 days in a row. Can you imagine that? Mm. As a child, just lying it's around, walking around. It's unbelievable. And as I say, it could never have happened 10 years ago. Mm. And all those guards knew it, and the superintendent knew it, the deputy superintendent, and watch this one the executive director of youth justice, the head bureaucrat, she knew precisely these conditions mm. that these children were experiencing. They're all Aboriginal. The Chief Executive Officer of Corrections, the whole department, knew precisely the conditions that these children were being kept under. And the Minister himself for Corrections, John Elfrink, he knew precisely these conditions. And we know that because we cross-examined them in the Royal Commission. And to get to the question that everybody begs and you asked earlier is, you know, how do we get to this? How do, how do Australian men and women conduct themselves in such a way, condone this thing? One of the questions I would ask each and every one of those witnesses at the end of the cross-examination, having got their concessions that they knew all about this, and it was a question that was really framed by my client's grandmother, an Aboriginal lady, when I explained what had happened to him. She couldn't believe it, as you'd expect. She couldn't believe it. And she said to me, she says, well, how did they go along with that? And that was the question I used to ask a lot of them, whether it was the Minister Elfrink or the Executive Director or the prison guards, how did you go along with that? Because they'd all admitted it was a disgrace, it was inhumane, it was cruel. So how do you do it? It's the banality of evil, isn't it? It's exactly that. And, you know, you got various explanations for that question. One of them was the, the, the um, obeying orders one, mm. which was, well, you'd have to ask my supervisor about that because, in other words, I was complaining about it or I tried my mm. best. And then the, the bureaucrats would say, oh, we were trying our able best to move them, but we just couldn't get... I mean, it's just ridiculous. Mm. Mm. They could have moved them into the normal section of the juvenile facility, yeah. but they didn't. So they were lying on their oath as mm. well. But this is what they were doing. And the, the thing I have to stress as a practitioner, white, Australian white, citizen white, parent white, that wouldn't have been allowed if they were non-Aboriginal, in my opinion. 
And that's, that cuts to the mm. centre of a lot of it. Because Aboriginal people are treated like they were at the beginning, which created terra nullius, mm. which was they're unworthy. They are subhuman. They are below us. I hate using these terms, mm. but we've got to get real. And that's what terra nullius reflected legally, and that it reflected how we related to Indigenous people back then, and we're still the same. Your father, to his eternal credit, took up arms against the legal system and fought it with his brains and his, and he, and his knowledge, and he erased Terra Nullius by taking it to the High Court of Australia and persuading them with his intellect that Terra Nullius was no longer the law, and they, and they won that argument. But the problem that Australia's got is, although it doesn't exist in law, the attitude upon which it was based is still here, mm. and it's worse now mm. in 2017 mm. than it was in 1997. And we're saying similar things, not just in the Northern Territory. You see the deaths in custody in Western Australia. You yeah. See, you know, there's too many to Horrible. even mention. Ah. Um, it's, uh, we've seen it all around Australia. Yeah. But, but these examples that you've, you've told us about yeah. and that have come out in this Royal Commission do seem... So extreme. Extreme. And we haven't and mentioned so the restraint chair. So bureaucratic. Yeah. yeah banal. Just, yeah, everyone just reverts to well, look, this was my orders, or mm. this was the policy, or this mm. was the something. But is anyone going to take responsibility for these? It, well, we have to move into responsibility as well because to properly describe the horror of this and the danger of it, we have to remind the listeners that each and every one of those kids had a lawyer. Mm who knew about these conditions that their client were in. And they weren't throwing bricks through windows or they weren't issuing writs of habeas corpus mm. in the Supreme Court, which I had the gall and audacity to suggest mm. to some of these lawyers. And of course, that didn't go down too well, I have to say, in the room full of lawyers, which is not good. And I didn't care without trying to blow a trumpet. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you, that, that when I got up and started getting into that area, everybody started looking at the navel, <laughs> including the Commissioner Margaret White. Um, but it had to be asked. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, during that period, and I think I explained this because somebody asked a question on Friday, mm -hmm. well, how come the lawyers didn't do anything? Yeah. And I described that halfway through this period, the corrections gurus, the bosses, decided to get the Aboriginal legal aid lawyers out to Dondale mm. and they actually showed them the conditions. And the reason they did that was because at the same time they had made an announcement that they were going to shut down Dondale and move the children into the former adult male jail, right. which had been shut down. Mm. And they had received a lot of criticism for that decision, as you'd expect, mm. because to put kids in an old, the Berrima prison, yeah. which, was, which had housed rapists, killers, pedophiles, yeah. That was the proposal. So Aboriginal groups, including Legal Aid, had said that can't be done. Mm. So they thought, well, to persuade Aboriginal Legal Aid to come on board with, to come on board with this proposal, we'll take them to the zoo mm. and show them the animals. And they did that. Mm. And they took these lawyers down into the BMU mm. and the lawyers gave evidence at the Royal Commission and it went like this. So we were taken down to the BMU and we could just smell the place. Mm. It just smelled like urine and stale, whatever. And it was all dark. And then all of a sudden, we saw things moving behind the bars and we said to each other, what the hell is, are there, are there people in here? And they asked the prison officers and they said, yeah, yeah, they're there. And then they sort of were taken back. And so they were, they were but they knew that anyway, because mm. the clients were the clients, they would have been telling them. Yeah. 
And what they did uh, was that they wrote a letter to the Corrections Commissioner saying that we are very concerned about the fact that we've seen children in this horrible unit and we're concerned about the mental health, the lighting. Mm. Uh, are they still going to be in there? What is the proposal? And the commissioner wrote back saying, yep, they are in there. The lighting's okay. We turn it off, we turn it on. They don't mm. mind it. Um, we're trying our best to find an alternative, which was bulldust. Mm. Um, and that's the state of play as it is. Now, and that was it. And then I asked the question following that, did anybody give any consideration at that stage, having confirmed that they were your clients, they were children, they were in this mm. appalling dungeon to take out a writ of habeas corpus, mm. and they said no. Now, I'm not in the business of criticising any of these. I'm just calling what has happened in Australia, in Darwin, in the Northern Territory in 2014, 15, 16. Lawyers doing that, mm. which answers the question, well, how do we get to that stage? In the last 20 years, a lot of Australian society and issues have been resolved by mediation, consultation. We have become an acquiescent country. And the, the dialectic of conflict, mm. of disagreement, of arguing, of you know dissent, mm. we have become a very conformist country. And so that response in 2014 was consistent with a policy that Aboriginal Legal Aid had pursued deliberately including the Criminal Lawyers Association, who are normally a lobby group with a reputation of being a bit of a stone in the shoe of the state. But they gave evidence that they had pursued this policy deliberately, which is one of having cordial relations with the Department of Corrections and government. Uh, cooperation, collaboration, which we considered was a more productive way of having a relationship. Mm. Uh, and so they ameliorated, say, whatever, there might be a proposal to amend the Bail Act to do this, that and the other, and then they'd get a, have a meeting and they would only do this and that. That kind of relationship. Mm. And it becomes cosy. Mm. And back-scratching emerges. Mm. And all of a sudden, lot, the kids who are the most vulnerable, the most exposed, the most disadvantaged, the most in need of a ferocious warrior, mm. because their nana can't do it, no. they trust legal aid to do it, they haven't got that. So we'll get the outcomes from the Royal Commission not not End so of far September, away. Yeah. What changes do you think have to happen to stop ourselves and others falling into this this complacent well, trap? What occurred to me um, following the lecture on Friday was that I was very encouraged by the fact that a lot of, uh, I assume there were Monash students, there could have been other students, but law students, young, young people, young people are stressed, came up to me and said, yeah, that was good, uh, tick that box, but really what they were urging on me was, pressing me, was what can we do? We want to do something, we agree, this is wrong, this is a collapse, we mm. disagree with this, but mm. what, what can we actually do? And, you know, it's not easy to say, well, you can do this or you can write a letter. I mean, you can do things like write letters, you can do petitions, you can take a stance. But to answer that question, and I, I reflected on this, to answer that question in a general way, and I think this is, this is significant, is that we live in an open democracy. We live in a country that ostensibly claims to be free. We live in an elected representative democracy with the rule of law and so forth. And it's incumbent on every citizen 
to make sure that we remain a free country. So part of democracy, which is, I don't think Australians appreciate anywhere near as much as even Europeans generally, and particularly the French, is civil disobedience. And because we are now, as I described, in that condition, and this is me speaking now, I, I am not a radical. I really don't consider myself a radical person. My perspectives, my views, my ideology, whatever you want to call it, are virtually the same as what they were in 1980 when I arrived in Australia. Mm. But this country's went way over here. And so I'm not radical. I'm not espousing anything that's particularly radical. I'm just calling the, the landscape as I see it and as it's changed. And civil disobedience is a very important, integral part of any democracy. And each citizen is endowed, and, in, and it's incumbent on each citizen to be aware of that. And, you know, that's how Martin Luther King... That's how Gandhi, that's how other great leaders in the past have taken up peaceful civil disobedience actions to make sure that unjust laws are disobeyed and changed. You know, Thomas Jefferson said it all when he said that, you know, we, we are obliged to disobey unjust laws. It's incumbent on us. Martin Luther King said the same. Gandhi said that is part of being a citizen. So civil disobedience is nothing to be scared about. It's actually, it's just like voting. It's something that we should all consider. And that really, now that we're in such a horrible place, to me as a lawyer, as a citizen, or whatever you want to call it, in the last three years I've suddenly realised, shit, this is civil disobedience territory now, because Labour's not going to change it, Liberals are not going to change it, whether it's refugee policy or Indigenous incarceration levels. They're still going to beat the same drum of law and order and keeping Australia safe from whatever they're pretending. So people who are right-minded, who are democratic, who are idealistic, uh, and leaders within that, particularly young people, are going to have to chain themselves to plant machinery or whatever it takes. And, and what's looming at the moment is the Adani coal mine. And we haven't even mentioned global warming, and yeah. why should we? Because we're supposed to be talking about the Royal Commission. But these things are all related. Yeah. And young people, I honestly believe that preaching to your good self, not you individually, but our generation... <laughs> is a waste of space because we've done this. We are responsible. Our blood's all over. Our fingerprints are all over this. Our generation, the, what do you call it? The baby boomers. We have left the biggest horrible sandwich for the young. And I believe that those students that spoke to me on Friday and others, my, including my children, they want this changed. They, they don't want half measures now. This can't work. And they, they, they just want it to be a decent society. It's a call to arms, John. Yeah, I think it is. And so be it. Because it, all it is is a, is a return to decency and, and propriety, treating people in a proper way. And that's what human beings do. We, we try and help each other. We don't lock each other up and stuff like that. So I think, so that question that was asked, that's what I, the point I, I would like to make to them now. I, I didn't think of it at the time, but I think really we have to consider that. Well, they'll be listening. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so thanks to John Lawrence for sitting down with Melissa Caston for that interview. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed it, please be sure to rate the podcast as it helps others to find it and also share it through your networks. Today's podcast was edited by Theo Lehrer.